Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 107, The Congress of Vienna. First, I want to thank our newest patrons, Helian Shark, Turner Jensen, and Konstantin Katalin Rigu. Hope I got all those pronunciations right, and thanks to all three of you. I know some of you have a long way to catch up, so you won't hear this for a while, but, you know, I like giving you all a shout-out when we get a new patron. Now, I'll also just mention, I'm now a happily married man, uh, further kind of entrenching myself in Bulgaria, and, well, Basically, I'm excited about starting a family here and and continuing to make a life here. So it's just some nice little personal news. And quick note, in May of 2020, I will be on a kind of post late honeymoon, you could say, in Italy with my wife. And well, if anyone is based there, if I have any listeners there who'd like to meet up, just reach out to me, you know, the Facebook group, uh, email, uh, there's a, a contact form on the website, you can reach out and I'd love to meet up with one of you. All right, so Last time, we started off season six with a new reform-minded sultan placed on the throne, leading to a standoff with the Janissaries, in which the sultan backed off his reforms but lived to fight another day. Then, war with Russia resumed and their forces moved to the Bulgarian frontier before retreating as the Serbs leading their uprising also went on the defensive. But the Russians then won a victory and signed the Treaty of Bucharest, in which they annexed Bessarabia. Then, Napoleon engaged in his disastrous invasion of Russia, crippling his empire with unimaginable losses. This also forced Russia to withdraw its support from the rebelling Serbs. Subsequently, without Russian backing, the first Serbian uprising was soon crushed, despite its years of successes up to that point. The reprisals were horrific, as this quote, cited in Petrovich's History of Modern Serbia, attests. Quote, Men were roasted alive, hanged by their feet over smoking straw until they asphyxiated, castrated, crushed with stones, and bansdenoed. Their women and children were raped and sometimes taken by force to harems. Outside Stumblegate and Belgrade, there were always on view the corpses of impaled Serbs being gnawed by packs of dogs. End quote. Clearly, the reprisals were terrible. And, you know, this is one of those cases where, again, I think it's important to note that this is largely, despite, uh, you know, Constantinople's kind of involvement, this was largely a fight between the local Janissaries and kind of local rulers and the Serbs. In any case, with that uprising dealt with, Sultan Mahmud II withdrew most of his soldiers, but resistance began almost immediately. In September of 1814, a Serbian revolutionary leader named Haji Prodan led a small uprising, but didn't garner enough support from other Serbian leaders who, for their own part, kind of felt the timing wasn't right. So they withheld their support, and by the end of the year, that revolt was crushed. But it did help to trigger further Ottoman reprisals on the Serbian population, which thereby encouraged talk of a second Serbian uprising. Clearly, the situation for many Serbs was simply untenable. They they couldn't tolerate uh, Ottoman rule with these kinds of reprisals. 
But by the next spring, that talk had actually turned into action, and a Serbian upstart had taken this combination of Ottoman soldier withdrawal and those brutal reprisals as the perfect moment to begin the second uprising. But this time, it wasn't led by Karadžorđ, but by the son of one of his greatest rivals, Miloš Obrenović. Now, Obrenović's rise to power had come from learning the lessons of Karadžorđ. While Karadžorđ believed in resisting the Ottomans at all cost and never compromising on full Serbian independence, Obrenović had participated in the first Serbian uprising, and following its defeat, he remained in that territory and actually aided the Ottomans in re-establishing control. For his assistance to the Ottomans, he was appointed knez of a central district in Serbia. So, again, you know, Karadžorđ has just sort of never worked with the Ottomans ever, Obrenovich is a bit more strategic. He's he's clearly approaching this with the eye of, okay, I'll, I'll help the Ottomans if that gets them to put me in a position of power and if I can ultimately use that power to achieve my aim. So he's a bit more of a realist, less ideologically, you could say. But despite having you know collaborated to some extent with the Ottomans, Obrenovich still took charge of the Second Serbian Uprising in the absence of Kara George, who was still in Austria. However, it's not as if Obrenovic was switching between loyal Ottoman subject and (laughs) vehement anti-Ottoman revolutionary, but rather he stated that he believed in gaining concessions and autonomy from the Ottomans, and that doing so was actually the best way forward, which helps explain kind of why he was willing to work with them to help establish control after the first Serbian uprising's failure. Now, this difference in tactics between Karadžorđ and Obrenović understandably triggered an intense rivalry between not just those men, but, well, their descendants. And as we're going to see, that rivalry will ultimately span centuries, with with each family really believing themselves to be the rightful rulers of Serbia. Unsurprisingly, Obrenović's goal with this new uprising, again, was different. He still considered himself an Ottoman vassal and planned to place himself at the head of a Serbian vassal state and not a fully independent Serbian state. But despite these more modest aims, Obrenovic opened the uprising on Palm Sunday of 1815 with the words, quote, Here I am, here you are, war to the Turks. End quote. Now, beyond his goals, Obrenovic's tactics also differed from his rival. Misha Glenny points out that, quote, he made every effort to avoid sustained military confrontation with the Ottoman armies, putting all his energy into striking a bargain with Istanbul, end quote. Now, meanwhile, as this second Serbian uprising is getting underway, the final actions of the Napoleonic era were underway. In May of 1814, Napoleon had surrendered after failing to recover from his catastrophic invasion of Russia. Napoleon had been exiled to a small Italian island. However, just as the Second Serbian Uprising was beginning, he made a dramatic return to power, culminating in his defeat at Waterloo in June of 1815. During that same period from 1814 to 1815, the Congress of Vienna was meeting to decide just how to orchestrate and agree upon the future of Europe after Napoleon. So, the Congress of Vienna was a very big and very complicated event, but I'll try to get to the parts that are most relevant to our story. First, 
the Congress aimed to firmly crush and undo all of the liberal and revolutionary ideas that had spread all around Europe as a result of the French Revolution. Now, this, in theory, applied to potential revolutions against the Ottomans as well, but, well, we'll see how that plays out during the season. Obviously, these European powers meeting in Vienna are less concerned with the integrity of the Ottoman Empire than they are with their own political integrity, so we'll see how they decide to kind of square that circle. But the point is the Congress reflected Europe's aim to put the revolutionary genie back into the bottle. And the tools for accomplishing this were the reestablishing of the French monarchy, but also utilizing secret police and censorship to monitor anyone who got, well, any big ideas about Republican government. So, that is something to note that we're entering the era where things like secret police and censorship are becoming much more kind of common aspects of life under any of the major European powers, and that will eventually apply to the Ottomans as well. So as we cover all the kind of revolutionary movements of the 19th century Balkans, remember that these tactics, these kind of anti-revolutionary tactics are becoming much more prominent. Now, historian Mark Mazauer summarized how all this applied to the Ottomans in his short book, The Balkans, stating, quote, while the Russians continued to see themselves as supporters of orthodoxy against the Turks, the Habsburgs became increasingly conservative and from Metternich on disliked the Slav liberation struggles on their doorstep. France and Britain wavered between supporting oppressed Christians against Muslim despotism and preserving the Ottomans against Russia. Balkan aspirations for self-rule were thus constrained by the competing and clashing interests of the great powers. End quote. So I, I really like that summary because I think in a very short kind of space, it really gives you an idea of why the Europeans were so kind of well, we're struggling so much to decide how they would treat the Ottomans and the Slavic peoples, not all Slavic, largely Slavic, uh, and the Greeks. And so, you know, looking to rise up against the Ottomans and reestablish independent states in the Balkans, right? They had to kind of contend with, okay, you know, maybe we think that these, you know, sort of oppressed Christian populations deserve their independence. Yes. But they're obviously far more concerned with, as I mentioned, suppressing rebellion, suppressing kind of this idea that someone's going to rise up and build their own state out of nothing. I mean, think of yourself, think of the uh, the Austrians, right? Think of the, the Habsburg Empire. You know, they're ruling over plenty of Hungarians and Slovaks and Czechs and Ruthenians and, uh, you know, uh, Croatians, Serbs, on and on and on. They're ruling over all of these people and while on the one hand, you know, weakening the Ottomans could allow the Habsburgs to expand into the Balkans to, to improve their kind of power in that region, but it's also very dangerous because it could give their own populations ideas. And as it mentioned, you know, for Great Britain, the overall concern is definitely restricting the power of Russia. Russia is now, you know, probably the kind of premier power on the European continent following the Napoleonic Wars, or at least is one of them at this point. And Britain is deeply concerned with their expansion in Central Asia, their expansion towards India, their expansion in the Middle East, and with them possibly taking Constantinople and thereby getting much better access to the Mediterranean and helping them to challenge the British on the seas. So 
you know, there, there's just too, too many things moving around. And as we'll see, once this uh, season moves along, this is going to play out over and over again. But the Congress of Vienna is where Europe really got together and kind of established the principles by which they would be making these decisions, even if they will kind of modify as time goes on. Now, one aspect of this that's of growing importance, in particularly in countries like France and Britain, and helps contribute to that awkwardness that Mazower pointed to, is the growing power of public opinion fueled by newspapers and other periodicals. Now, less so in France a bit, but certainly in England, where public opinion could influence Parliament and pressure them to act in favor of Balkan peoples, even when pure geopolitics told Britain to favor the Ottoman status quo. Now, we'll talk a lot more about this again in this season because the coming of newspapers actually affects a great many things. It helps in nation building, and again, it it helps to kind of create popular opinion as a balance to what the rulers of these countries and empires have to say, and really complicates European politics substantially. Now, beyond all this, the Congress of Vienna also firmly established the idea of the Concert of Europe something we've seen kind of gradually develop until now. Whereas in centuries past, the European powers did essentially what they liked, we've started to see a new pattern where European powers are increasingly concerned with maintaining balance and making sure everyone is happy. For example, in the carve-up of Poland, right? Russia could have just stepped in and taken some Polish territory, but it wanted to make sure that everyone was balanced, everything was happy, and that it wouldn't trigger a larger war, and so it was willing to give up some portions of Poland to other countries. We've also seen a similar thing with European powers kind of coordinating to decide who's going to declare war against the Ottomans and maybe to stop Russia from continuing to push against the Ottomans and to take more territory than the Europeans thought Russia should have there. Now, this system will soon begin to define 19th century Bulgarian history as the size and makeup of any potential Bulgarian state will become subject to the whims of European powers who are really more interested in maintaining this concert of Europe than with anything else like what Bulgarians or the people living in these territories might actually want. So, overall, the French monarchy was restored. Some European territory was traded around. And, well, that's kind of the wrap-up of the Congress of Vienna. Now, back to the Second Serbian Uprising. Now, in theory, Russia was now in a position to return to its role as a supporter of the Serbs against the Ottomans. However, Tsar Alexander had firmly committed himself to actually being a protector of the integrity of the Ottoman Empire. You'll remember that quote from a previous episode. And, He had, in particular, just promised the Austrians to help maintain this brand new concert of Europe, so the Russians would have to sit out participating in the Second Serbian Uprising. But, luckily for the Serbs, it seems the Ottomans were still quite worried that the Russians might get involved, which helped push them towards peace. So, even just the threat, the vague idea that Russia might get involved was enough to make the Ottomans not want to drag out this fight. So, Kind of with and without Russian support, the Second Serbian Uprising quickly wound down as negotiations began with the Ottomans, just at the same time that Napoleon was being defeated at Waterloo and the Congress of Vienna was wrapping up. Within two years, Sultan Mahmud granted Obranovich exactly what he wanted, himself as supreme knez of an autonomous Serbia with its own assembly and even an army. 
Thus, the Principality of Serbia was established. Now, quite ironically, these were almost the exact same terms that Karadžorj had rejected eight years previously. But we can see this as really a victory for Obrenovich. He got what he wanted. He got an autonomous Serbia. He got a lot of those kind of national elements that he wanted. And with a lot less bloodshed, it was obviously the second Serbian uprising was a lot shorter, a lot less bloody than the first. But all this kind of raises the question, what on earth is Kata George doing during all this time? Well, let's go back and kind of recap a little. So, he initially fled to Austria following the collapse of the first Serbian uprising, and once he got to Austria, he was instantly arrested. Remember, he was the leader of a rebellion, and if there's one thing Austria hated during the Napoleonic era, it was rebellions. But also, he was a valuable asset. You know, he could be traded or something. Everyone, you know, the Ottomans certainly wanted him. And so, unsurprisingly, the Ottomans demanded that he be hand over. But the Austrians decided to split the difference and actually handed him over to Russia. So, once he was there, he settled in Bessarabia, newly annexed, as you'll remember. Now, unsurprisingly, Karadzic was desperate to participate in the Second Serbian Uprising. After all, prior to Obrenovich's rise to a position of power, Karadzic had always been the presumptive leader of Serbia. Now, Obrenovich was stepping in and taking what Karadzic felt was rightfully his. Karadzic begged the Russians to allow him to go and participate, but instead they arrested him. Now, remember, Russia couldn't be seen as helping any rebels aimed at upsetting the European order at this point, so there was just no way they could allow Karadzic to go. But eventually, Karadzic was released and subsequently joined a secret Greek nationalist organization which aimed to create a Balkan-wide uprising against the Ottomans. With their help, Karadzic smuggled himself back into Serbia in 1817, where he was very quickly betrayed by men working for Obrenovic. Karadzic's head was subsequently cut off and sent to the Ottoman vizier in Belgrade before being publicly displayed in Constantinople. So, yeah, obviously this is yet more fuel for the Karadzic Obrenovic uh, family dynastic feud. But now, soon, we're going to have to talk about the Greek uprising initiated by that secret society which Karadzic was working for. But for now, know that Serbia was prevented from participating in that kind of Balkan-wide uprising because of Karadzic's murder and, well, Obrenovic's control there. But why did Obrenovic murder Karadzic. Well, obviously he was a rival, but he also saw Karadzic's aim at triggering yet another uprising with the aim of gaining full Serbian independence as being, well, foolhardy, stupid. It risked losing all the gains that Serbia now enjoyed. It also kicked off nearly a century of violence between those two families, as I mentioned. But also, Obrenovic was really playing the long game in Serbia. His plan, which played out over the next few decades, was to gain economic power in Serbia and then use the wealth he accumulated to gain power and leverage over the Ottomans. In essence, he aimed to build a relationship with Constantinople which he could use to gradually gain concessions. By the 1830s, he will actually be one of the wealthiest men in Europe. Meanwhile, some changes were going on within the Ottoman realm. Even without the rebelling Serbs to deal with, the Ottomans struggled to exert control in their European territories. 
R.J. Crampton points out that, quote, even as late as 1816, much of the Adrianople area was beyond the reach of the central government, and around Borgas, the only effective authority was a band of brigands, some 300 strong. End quote. Put another way, Shaw's History of the Ottoman Empire describes how Sultan Mahmud II dealt with this well, lack of control. Quote, when at all possible, the notables were reduced by peaceful means. When a notable holding an official position died, it was not assigned to his heirs, but rather to new officials from Istanbul, who compensated his relatives and followers with appointments elsewhere in the empire. Only when such measures failed was the mainly unreformed Ottoman army used, usually with unexpected and surprising effects. By such methods, Thrace, Macedonia, and the Danubian shores, as well as much of Wallachia, were taken from the notables and put under direct Ottoman control once again between 1814 and 1820. So we can see that Mahmud is, tr again, trying to kind of break the power of these notables and really going back to you know, centuries-old Ottoman techniques for that. You know, back in the early stages of the empire, you, you, it was never, ever, ever allowed that a dynasty could rule in one place. And people, you know, if you were kind of taken from the Devshirme, if you were, you know, let's say from Bulgaria and became a prominent Ottoman administrator or something, they wouldn't put you back in Bulgaria. They put you in, you know, Anatolia or Syria or something to help prevent anyone from building an independent power base from the Ottomans. And so now we can see Mahmoud is trying to kind of rekindle some of these techniques and to break the power of the notables, and that it's gradually working. Now, during this period, the Sultan also did things like issue a firman, a kind of order, that peasants from the Svistov area in Bulgaria who had left the area would have to be returned. So that's just one example I found in a book. But Again, noting that the Sultan is really trying to restore the previous order as much as possible, and similar actions were also underway to suppress the local notables in the Anatolian and Arab provinces of the empire. As a part of that effort, in 1818, the Emirate of Diriyam, the first Saudi state, was destroyed by Muhammad Ali of Egypt, ending the Ottoman-Saudi war. The Saudi leader, Abdullah bin Saud, was captured and sent to Constantinople, where he was executed. Now, ironically, this was both an example of the Ottomans putting down rebellions, as well as an example of the growing independent power of Egypt, which really had won this war. Following this victory, Ali turned his military ambitions towards Sudan, doing so completely independent of the Sultan or the central Ottoman state. And so the increasingly independent Egypt spent the next four years from 1820 to 1824 conquering and brutally running a regime in the Sudan. Also a quick note that in 1816, the construction of some of the residential quarters of the Rila Monastery began, showing that despite the chaos of the Ottoman realm, some wealth was gradually beginning to return to Bulgarian lands, at least enough to engage in projects like this. In fact, just a year later, the governor of Duknitsa, would actually borrow money from the monastery to help cover a budget shortfall, again showing that the monastery was pretty flush with cash. Now, all of this brings us to the 1820s. One thing to mention here is that this is a decade that finally brought the return of some stability to Bulgarian lands which had been so ravaged by bandits for decades up to this point. 
This return to stability will become vital as it allowed some Bulgarians to gradually become wealthy and to subsequently use that wealth to build some of the foundations of the Bulgarian national revival. So all these things are really connected. And one of the ways this was being done by the Ottoman government, one of the ways that you know peace is returning, was actually to hire a lot of these kind of local bandits and brigands to go from attacking and raiding to protecting roads and you know key infrastructure. In exchange, they would basically take protection money from local communities. Now, the overall effect was definitely more stability, but also a network of corruption. And to be frank, these men were pretty much always ready to take up arms for anyone else who might pay them more. They weren't exactly loyal kind of agents of the Ottoman government. So, you know, things are, are getting back to normal. Some stability is, is re-entering, but the stability is not on such a stable foundation, so to speak. Now, while things are returning to normal in Bulgaria during this decade, though, the opposite thing is happening further south in Greece. Remember that Kata George had worked with a secret Greek society intent on starting a grand kind of anti-Ottoman revolution? Well, in 1821, that revolution began, but not where you might expect, you know, like in Greece. But first, a little bit of background. Since the 1699 Treaty of Karlovitz, the Greeks had gradually been accumulating more and more political and economic power in the Ottoman realm. As I've mentioned, the Phanariot Greeks of Istanbul had already established themselves as the Ottoman rulers in Wallachia and Moldavia. But beyond this, throughout the 18th century, Greeks from around the empire gained new economic rights to sail their own ships and conduct trade with other European powers. Under these circumstances, by the 1800s, the Greeks dominated Ottoman maritime trade. This made Greece wealthier and hastened the arrival of Western revolutionary ideas. The Society of Friends, which was that secret Greek organization I keep mentioning, had been gradually placing its partisans throughout the Balkans, where, despite the fact that Russia had no intention of supporting a Greek uprising, and remember many Greeks did not forget that the Russians had pulled their support from the last Greek uprising, well, these Greek partisans convinced many people who were on the fence that actually Russia would back them against the Ottomans. Once again, Russia, with no intention of getting involved, was actually having a lot of influence. Now, the first actions of this uprising actually begin in Wallachia and Moldavia. Again, weird. The plan was that these uprisings would distract the Ottomans and well, again, the original plan had been a Balkan-wide uprising, and so, you know, this would trigger a Balkan-wide uprising and help spread out Ottoman anti-revolutionary resources. However, remember that the Ottomans had not ruled these territories directly for a very long time. Ironically enough, the people who had imposed misrule upon the people of Wallachia and Moldavia were not the Ottomans so much as the Phanariot Greeks. It's no great surprise that the locals were not exactly enthusiastic about the idea of following some Greek revolutionaries against the Ottomans. So when the Greek leader Alexander Ypsilantis proclaimed the revolution in the Danubian principalities, Russia, far from rushing in to provide aid, was furious. Tsar Alexander went so far as to offer to aid the Ottomans in putting down the rebellion. And as Ypsilantes was actually an officer in the Russian army, which was one of the reasons people believed him when he said the Russians would support them, well, 
The Russians quickly rectified this and ejected him from that position. No surprise, the revolt there lasted a mere two months before it was crushed, forcing Ypsilantis to flee to Hungary. While this did nothing to help the Greek War of Independence, it did though help stir an independence movement in Wallachian Moldavia, which ironically was aiming basically to throw off Greek Phanariot rule there. But what about the Greeks elsewhere in the empire? Well, their feelings were also quite mixed. Greeks held more power and influence in the Ottoman Empire than any other non-Muslim group. For centuries, they had had influential roles as dragomans in the Ottoman administration, and in that role, they had effectively become the Ottoman foreign ministry. In other words, in addition to thriving economically within the empire, they also held substantial political power. Still, the power of nationalism and desire for independence was also strong, as previous results in Morea had shown. Because, well, for the Greek peasants paying taxes to either a Greek or Turkish landowner, the power of the merchants or the dragomans meant very little, though. A book by Stakris Andropoulos, published in 1899, described the, quote, proto-aristocratic Greeks dominating many peasants known as Kochabashi. He said, quote, The Kochabashi imitated the Turk in everything, including dress, manners, the household, his notion of living in style was the same as the Turks. The only difference between them was one of names. For instance, instead of being called Hassan the Kojabashi, he would be called Yani. And instead of going to the mosque, he would go to the church. This was the only distinction between the two. End quote. To summarize, I'll quote Misha Glenny again. Quote, Many of these Greek-speaking groups had grievances against the empire but most were reaped some benefit from their standing in society. The Phanaria Greeks, in particular, were deeply complicit in imperial corruption and resistant to radical change. The imperial Greeks' combination of intellect, wealth, and military prowess was of critical value to the insurgents once the rebellion broke out. Yet it frequently complicated matters. The Greeks suffered from the same local particularism that eventually destroyed Kara George's leadership of the Serbian uprising. Theirs was a more challenging ideological struggle than the Serbs, as the Greeks were obliged to address the question of their historical and contemporary identity. For despite their intellectual and social wealth, the Greeks did not know who they were. End quote. And that's where I'm going to end things today with the stage set for the Greek uprising that's about to rock the so recently established European concert. Meanwhile, in slower and subtler ways, Bulgaria itself was also transforming, and we'll be watching closely to learn from the Greeks as they struggle for their independence, just as the Bulgarians had already watched the Serbs. So, you'll catch that one next time. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check out the Bulgarian language of the version of the podcast and look at the page on the website linked below with images and more information about this episode. All right. See you guys next time.